You can take your Bibles and open them to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And before we begin, I'd like to just uh, pray and ask, again, ask the Lord's blessing on our time as we look into His Word. Uh, And we want to... We want to handle the word correctly, and we want to understand it and apply it, and so I think it's important for us to begin with prayer. So let's ask God's blessing now as we study Galatians 5. Our dear Heavenly Father, we are again coming to you this morning because we recognize that you are a great God, almighty, all-wise, and that you have given us your word. We also realize that even with your word in front of us, we are unable many times to understand and discern the truth because we need your help. And apart from you giving us wisdom and insight, illuminating your word, it becomes impossible for us to truly know and understand and apply what you've said. Certainly, even if we understand it, it becomes impossible for us to do it apart from your help. And so we ask this morning that as we study it, you'd open our eyes to the truth, open our hearts to receive the truth, and that you would strengthen us to do it, that we might live in a way that pleases you. I pray that you would be glorified in it, and everything that is said this morning in Jesus' name, amen. Now, last Sunday, we studied Jesus' response to Satan's temptation. The temptation was to bow down and worship him in exchange for the authority to rule over the kingdoms of the world. And we studied there in Luke chapter 4 and verse 8, and we identified the first of six core values of Emmanuel Baptist Church. And the first core value is God-centered worship. Jesus said, and we believe that we are to worship the one true God who is revealed in the Old Testament by the name Yahweh. Incidentally, he's revealed in the New Testament by his son, Jesus Christ, who came so that we might see God. And we are to serve only Him. That means as a church and as individuals that we submit our will to God's will and we reject anyone or anything that threatens to take His place. So the concept of of God-centered worship really has to do with answering this question. Who's in charge? Who's in charge in our church? Is it the pastor? Is it the deacons? Is it the congregation? Or is it the Lord? Right? And who's in charge of your life as a Christian? It's not, you know, God is my co-pilot. 
I go to him when I need help, you know, when I need direction, when I, when I make a wrong turn. No, he's in charge. That's worshiping God. I hope that this morning, at some point, before you came to the service, you spoke with the Lord and told him that he is the focus and the center of your worship today. If you didn't do that this morning, then I would encourage you to make that a regular part of your Sunday morning routine. That at somewhere along the line, you speak with God and you speak those words. That He is the focus and the center of your worship. Why do you have to tell Him? Well, because it's a good reminder for you. We tell Him for us. He knows, but we need to tell Him. We need to speak. We need to talk to Him and pray to Him. And we need to to confess to Him that He is Lord. We ought to do that on a regular basis. Not only that, not only I hope you've done that as an individual, but that's what we have tried to do here as a congregation already. That's why we began the service the way we began the service, so that we could begin by focusing on God so that He would be the center and the the focal point of our worship. Now, that deals with the question of who's in charge. Who is the center? God. But once we establish that God's will is supreme in our life and in the church, we still have to ask, how does that work on a daily basis? basis or even a moment by moment basis right and that's really where the second core value comes into play as i said last week i think that all of our core values flow out of this the first one god-centered worship if we get that right then i think when when the object of our worship is right then how we worship and the methods that we use and the means by which we worship will be Right, they'll fall in line. And so this one flows directly out of that one. The first core value is God-centered worship. The second is spirit-controlled living. And so I'd like to focus our attention this morning on Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, Paul says this, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, Outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, Long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. 
Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. You know, just like the topic of worship, the concept of, or rather the ministry of the Holy Spirit is very often misunderstood in churches today. In fact, there's a book that was written by Pastor Francis Chan. The book is entitled Forgotten God, and it's a book about the Holy Spirit. It's actually a really, really excellent presentation of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So many people today think of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit in terms of ecstatic experiences like speaking gibberish or falling down or other so-called demonstrations of power. But the Bible's teaching on the ministry of the Spirit is really quite different from this. You'll not find any such experiences attributed to the Holy Spirit in Scripture. Incidentally, what you will find, though, is you will find those kind of experiences uh, credited to the demon-possessed who were delivered from such things by the power of God's Spirit. But that's another conversation for another day. But I don't really want to get into this morning the ways in which the Holy Spirit is misunderstood. But instead, I want to study what Paul says here in Galatians 5. Because Paul gives us in Galatians 5, verses 16 through 25, a a picture, a description of what life is like when it is lived under the control of the Holy Spirit of God. And then I want to do two things. I want to ask the same questions we asked last week. What does this mean for us as a church? If this is our core value, Paul's going to show us what it looks like. I'm going to ask, what does this do for us as a church? How does it serve as a core value to guide our decision making, our actions and our beliefs? And then I want to ask the other side of the coin, which is, what does it mean for us as individual Christians? And I think that's important. So let's take a look here at Galatians 5, and let's just work through the passage. And I want to try and draw out a few of these principles. The first thing we notice in verses 16 through 18 is what I call engaging the enemy. Engaging the enemy. And I'm using this language on purpose because it fits with what Paul is talking about. Paul says, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, for the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another. Paul here begins by telling us to walk in the Spirit. And of course, he's writing this to the churches in Galatia. These are Christians, 
Paul is writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-believers. He's not writing to skeptics or people who are on the verge of understanding the gospel. These are Christians who are born again, who've been baptized in the church, who have confessed Jesus Christ as Lord, who are members of the church, who are involved in the church. And Paul is teaching them and he says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Now, what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? Well, I think there's three ways that we can answer that. There's a negative way. We can, we can provide a contrast here. We define it negatively in contrast to fulfilling the lust of the flesh. He says, if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So whatever walking in the Spirit is, it must be the opposite or something different from fulfilling the lust of the flesh. Now you can just, you don't have to turn there with me. I'm going to turn back to Romans chapter 13. You can keep your finger there if you want and turn, or you can just write it down. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, where Paul says this, Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So what are the lusts of the flesh according to Romans 13? Well, Paul describes them. Revelry and drunkenness, lewdness and lust, strife and envy. These are the lusts of the flesh. These are the things that our sinful flesh desires. And if it is left to itself, if we simply allow our body and our flesh to get what it wants... This is where we'll end up. Revelry and drunkenness, lewdness and lust, strife and envy. Peggy mentioned this during Sunday school that sometimes we treat sin lightly, too lightly. When we treat sin lightly, this is where we end up with the lusts of the flesh being dominant. In 1 John chapter 2 and verse 16, John says that the lusts of the flesh are not of the Father, but are of the world. And because they're of the world, John says they are passing away along with the world. So if we want to pursue the lust of the flesh, understand that's what we're pursuing. We're pursuing revelry, drunkenness, lewdness, lust, strife, and envy. Things of the world that are passing away. We are not pursuing things of the Father because the, the, the lust of the flesh is not of the Father. And so in one sense, we could say it this way, if the lusts of the flesh represent sinful and uncontrolled passions, then walking in the Spirit must represent a life of holiness and turning away from the works of the flesh. And so when Paul says, walk in the Spirit, he means, at least in part, turn away from the works of the flesh. Turn away from the things that characterize your sinful character, your sinful person. And if you're born again today and you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, then I think that you will agree with me when you think about what 
you what your sinful flesh is like. I probably don't have to describe it for you. You know what it is. You know what those desires are. You know what those tendencies are. You know the things that left to yourself, if you just let it go, that's where you'll end up. And you know those things. And Paul says that walking in the Spirit means turning away from those things. It means turning our back on those things. It means rejecting those things. But there's also a positive way that we can describe it. Look at verse 17. Paul says, The flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. You know, what Paul describes here is a battle. That's why I use the terms engaging the enemy. The enemy here is not Satan. Please don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Satan is not an enemy. Peter talks about him as our enemy walking around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So he is an enemy, a formidable foe that we should take very seriously. He's far too, he's far too uh, powerful for us to take on our own. We need the Lord Jesus Christ. But understand, in this passage, Satan is not in view anywhere in this passage. What is the enemy? The enemy is your flesh. There is a battle going on, Paul says. There's a battle taking place between the flesh and the spirit. They are contrary to one another. Enemies. The the description here that Paul gives in verse 17. Okay, think of it this way. It's not like your, um, your, your flesh and the spirit are like on opposite sides of the room so that they got enough space to kind of do their thing without bothering one another. Paul says, no, 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 no. They are face to face, toe to toe, so that they cannot abide with the other. Your flesh cannot abide the Spirit of God that is in you. Your flesh hates, wars against, wants to overcome the power of the Spirit. But the Spirit of God who is in you wars against, does battle with the flesh to overcome it. There is a battle taking place. You ever do this when you're witnessing to someone? You talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ and tell them, that, you know, hey, I really, I really want you to consider being, becoming a Christian because just think about it. There's conflict. There's turmoil. There's battle to the death that will take place within you for the rest of your life. Come on, sign right up, right? Who wants to sign up for that? And Paul says, this is the normal Christian experience. This isn't the experience of uh, of pastors and missionaries and and Christians who are out there on the cutting edge of, of ministry, who are just really in the midst of the battle. No, Paul says that within you there is a battle going on. That if you are in Christ, if you have been born again and your sins have been forgiven, then you are in the midst of a battle. Your flesh wars against the Spirit. The Spirit wars against the flesh. And guess what? 
to battle to the death, someone and only one is going to be left standing. That's how it works. There's no peace treaty that's going to be signed. You can't wave the white flag and come to some sort of agreement. (coughs) This is normal Christian life. It's a battle. One writer that I read this week put it this way, walking in the Spirit is not the same thing as coasting along in a fair breeze. For the flesh wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And so, in one sense, we could say it this way, walking in the Spirit is engaging in the battle with your flesh. I would submit to you that for some of us, it's time... It's about time we actually got into the fight. It's about time we actually got into the fight. It's too easy for us sometimes to sit back, casual, thinking that somehow we can just coast on through. When we don't do battle, when we don't engage our flesh, when we don't uh, take part in this war that is going on, when we give our flesh the victory, we just give in. Now it's interesting, you talk to people who are addicted to certain sins, or any sin for that matter, and I think it's common for them to talk about how, how much of a struggle it is. How hard it is. But you want to know something? You want to know a secret? I'll tell you this secret. I've learned this secret from, well, it's not really a secret, but I'll I'll tell you I've learned this personally, firsthand by experience. You think temptations are difficult when you give in to them? Try fighting for a while. See, it's only when you begin to fight the temptation that that's when it really begins to get serious. You think the temptations are are bad when when a temptation comes and you resist the temptation for five minutes and it just seems so hard. Try resisting it for an hour. How much harder will it be? For a day, for a week. You see, we, we have this idea that somehow if I just resist a little bit, it'll just get better. Well, it doesn't. It gets worse. It's a battle. It's a war. The flesh warring against the spirit. The spirit warring against the flesh. We've got to engage in this battle. The truth is, a lot of times it gets worse before it gets better. Because the temptation, most of us don't really know how bad and how difficult temptation can be because we never fight it long enough to get there. We give in way before it gets really difficult. And we talk about the struggle and we talk about how hard it is and we talk about the temptations and, and, and the reality is, the reality is we're not really even struggling. We're just giving in. It's time for some of us to engage in the battle with our flesh. And so Paul says, walk in the Spirit. And what he means is get in the fight. Get off the sidelines. Enter the battle 
Then verse 18 is interesting. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This might seem out of place. Of course, we started in verse 16. If we went back to the first part of the chapter, we'd see it isn't out of place at all. Paul has been dealing with the issue of the law. The whole book of Galatians, the reason he wrote the book is that the issue of the law became an issue in the churches in Galatia. There were some Jews who came to the Galatian churches and began to teach these Gentile Christians that if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to need to become circumcised. You're going to need to keep the law of Moses if you're going to be a Christian. And so Paul is writing this letter in response to that. And so he's shooting down that idea. But but the truth of the matter is, when we look at, at this issue of temptation and the ongoing issue of temptation in our life, there's usually two ways that we deal with it. There's usually two ways that we deal with it. The first way is legalism. We say, all right, I'm going to defeat temptation, and here's how. I'm going to come up with a list of rules, and we're going to keep these rules, and as long as we follow these laws, we'll be fine. Maybe it's the Old Testament law. Or maybe it's a whole other different system of laws. It doesn't really matter what the system is. But that's one way out, right? Let's just come up with a list of rules, and we follow those rules and regulations, and we'll be fine. And we won't have to worry about the flesh because we'll, we'll take care of it by just following these rules. Now, the other way that we often deal with it is license. We say, you know, listen, you're a Christian. You have license. You have liberty to live as you please. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So you know what? You are free. Don't worry about the flesh. Just live your life. You're free to live as you please. Of course, that only leads to indulgence of the flesh. And so we come up with this idea that there's only two choices. There's A and there's B. Right? There's A and there's B. We can go to legalism or we can go to license. We can just come up with a list of rules and live that way. That's what the the Judaizers were trying to get them to do in Galatians. Or we can just say, yeah, forget all those rules and we we can be lawless. We can say, hey, there's no rules at all. We can do whatever we want. What's interesting to me is, as I was studying this this week, sometimes I've, I've, I like to use the, the illustration of, a, of driving down a road, and in a road there's a ditch on either side, and you fall in the ditch on either side. And so you want to avoid the ditch on either side by moderating the position in the middle. But here's the thing, the beautiful thing about what Paul says. Paul rejects that, at least in this case. It's not that we avoid the ditch of legalism on one side and license on the other by striking a balance. Paul says, no, 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 throw all those out. There's a third way that's over and above them. It's not even on the same plane. And what is it? Well, if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. Because walking in the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, is something totally different. It's not legalism or license. It's a third way that's completely different over and above, better, superior in every way. The life of the Spirit. Life of the Spirit is better than the law. We'll see it here in a minute about why that is true, but the life of the Spirit is better than the law. 
The life of the Spirit is better than self-indulgence. You see, keeping the law leads to self-righteousness, and, and just rejecting law altogether leads to self-indulgence. But there's a better way, and the way of the Spirit is better than both. So choosing to live by faith and love, that's the life of the Spirit. That's what he means by walking in the Spirit here. It's a better way than walking in either legalism or license. We've got to deal with the temptation of our sinful flesh. We have to deal with the flesh. But rather than choosing A or B, let's choose the Spirit. Let's choose the third way that Paul gives. This is better. We walk in the Spirit That's interesting, too, because in the next verses, Paul talks about what I describe here as exhibiting the change. How can you tell? How can you tell whether you're walking in the Spirit? How can you see that? How can you tell that it's better? Well, look at what he says in verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. The works of the flesh are evident. Guess what? You can look. You can see these things. These are obvious things. If you see these things, you know what this tells you? Look down through the list. If you see these things, you know what it says? It says that you are doing the works of the flesh. So a life of self-indulgence in which we throw out all regulation, all rule, and we say, hey, I don't have to do, I can do whatever I want because I'm in Christ. Well, you can see what we end up with there, those works of the flesh. Paul makes it very clear, verse 21, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Understand this, first of all, that walking in the Spirit rejects willful sin. This is why it's better than license. It's better than just saying, hey, do whatever you want. Walking in the Spirit is better than that because it does away with it, rejects sin. You see, if we emphasize license and we say, hey, all that matters is you're in Christ, then do what you want, what we are doing is we're opening the door Giving the opportunity, the approval to say, hey, do whatever you want. That includes anything, man. You, you know, you can do whatever you want. There's nothing, there's no condemnation. And so we end up resulting in these works of sin, these works of the flesh. Paul warns those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that if you're a Christian and you engage in one of these things that you will not go to heaven? No. It's not what Paul means. The word practice here has the idea and indicates someone whose life is characterized by these sins. These are habitual characterizations. This is what your life is about. So someone who is characterized by these things is not characterized by repentance and faith. Is it possible that a Christian could become involved in one of these sins? 
Yes. Could he be involved in two of them, three of them, five of them, all of them? Yes. Does it mean they're no longer a Christian? No. But the difference is a Christian will respond to their sin by repentance. Repentance and faith in Christ. An unbeliever revels in their sin, takes pleasure in it, builds their life around it, willfully continues in it. And I would submit to you this, that, that, that no one who willfully continues in sin can have the assurance of eternal life. But the converse is also true that no one who has the confidence of eternal life by faith can continue willfully in sin. I think that principle is taught as well in Scripture. That if you are truly born again, you will not continue in sin, rejecting repentance, rejecting rebuke. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. And the Spirit wars against the flesh. And so Paul says here that these kind of things will not characterize those who are believers. Oh, believers can be caught up in sin just like anyone else. But they will not be the characteristics of believers. And so walk in the Spirit. Why? Because it rejects these things. Walk in the Spirit because when you walk in the Spirit, you won't do these things. You'll turn away from these things. You'll repudiate them. You'll repent of them and you'll find mercy. But there's another side of the coin because then he goes into verse 22 and 23 and he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And we love this list. We don't like reading the other lists so much, but this one, love, joy, peace, uh, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, kindness, self-control. I don't know, I probably got them out of order, but it doesn't matter. And then he says this, really interesting statement, against such there is no law. Well, who on earth would make a law against those things? That just seems ridiculous, right? I don't think that's exactly what Paul means. I don't think it's as simple as that. It seems like he would be saying, well, yeah, there's no law against those things. Well, of course, who's going to make a law against love? Who's going to make a law against joy and peace and goodness and gentleness? Nobody's going to make a law about that. I think what Paul is saying is this. That when you walk in the Spirit, when you walk in the Spirit, the law becomes unnecessary. You don't need a list of rules. Because what you are doing, the fruit that is being born out in your life, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, all of these things, they go far and above the demands of the law. Paul talks about this in 1 Timothy chapter 1 where he indicates that the law was not meant for righteous men. See, if you walk in the Spirit, the law was not meant for you. In fact, if you walk in the Spirit, to keep the law is doing less. See, it's a lower standard. Why do you think people want to go back to keeping the Old Testament law today. Why do you think there are people in churches like this who talk about and read it and they say, you know, we need to go back to keeping the Old Testament law. Why? Because it's a lower standard of righteousness. 
You think, well, wait a second, this doesn't seem right. They're keeping a bunch of laws I'm not keeping. But if you're walking in the Spirit, then here's your standard of righteousness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, self-control. Good luck, apart from the Spirit of Christ. Good luck producing any of those things apart from Christ. You can keep a lot of laws, but good luck following and living in, walking in the Spirit and producing the fruits of the Spirit apart from Christ. You cannot do it. It's a higher standard. So when we walk in the Spirit, we don't need the law. Why? Because what we're doing is over and above the demands of the law. There's no way you could legislate love and joy and peace. How can you legislate peace in a person's heart? But when the Spirit of Christ comes, He produces peace. He makes peace. See? There's a completely different thing here. That's what Paul is saying. This is so much better than living by rules. Live by the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This is where the la- it gets really good, though, in verses 24 and 25, because here's where we, t- we have what I call expecting to win. Expecting to win. See, you look at this and you say, man, I've signed up for a battle and I didn't even know I signed up. You know, I, 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 I came to Christ, I wanted to my sins to be forgiven, have eternal life, and all of a sudden I find myself in a battle. I find that all of a sudden I want to do good and I don't do it and I get frustrated. And I want to stop sinning and then I sin and I get frustrated and I'm in a battle and I don't know what to do and I don't seem to win and every day it's harder. Anybody relate to that? (laughs) Is there any hope? Well, here's hope. Paul talks here about expecting to win. Look at verse 24. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I love verse 24. Your flesh was crucified. When was it crucified? Where was it crucified? Well, all you have to do is go back to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 to find out. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, But Christ lives in me. Paul says, when Christ was crucified, I was crucified. My flesh was crucified. And he says, not just Paul, all those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh. It's actually interesting the way that he says that because it's an active term it's something that you and i did did you realize that here's here's another thing did you know when you trusted in jesus christ when you cried out to him and you said lord i believe that you died for my sins and i'm a sinner and i believe that you promised to save me and forgive me lord please cleanse my heart and forgive me when you did that did you know that you stuck your flesh on that cross and drove nails to to crucify your flesh because that's what he says here Those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh. You did it. When you came to Christ, you nailed your flesh to the cross. You put your own flesh to death. 
I'm not saying this in some sort of empowering way. I'm saying that that's the reality. Paul says, when you came to Christ, it was your flesh that got put on the cross. So that your flesh, your old man, could be crucified, put to death, destroyed. What does this mean? It means that even though there is a war raging, the outcome is already decided. Your flesh is already nailed to the cross. It has already been crucified. Victory is assured. The outcome of the battle is already guaranteed. It's written down. So is there hope? Can we expect to win? Yes, we ought to expect to win in the battle with our flesh because our flesh is crucified. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. Paul here is speaking of a positional reality. This is true. That when you were saved, when you came to Christ, you were your, your, your flesh was crucified. Your sin was removed. You were declared to be righteous. Your old man is passing away. It's true. It's real. You need to believe it. You need to embrace it. You need to understand that it has already happened. So that you are no longer a slave to sin. You are no longer forced to do what your flesh desires. You say, but the temptation's strong. I know there's a battle, there's a war. But understand, prior to your coming to Christ, prior to your salvation, prior to trusting in Jesus Christ, guess what? There was no battle. The flesh was winning. The flesh won every time. It was never even a question. It wasn't a contest. There was no battle. There was no struggle. It was just your flesh dominating. Why? Because you were a slave. And slaves do not tell their masters what to do. Slaves do not say no to their master. The master commands and the slave acts. And guess what? When you were without Christ, you were a slave. Your sin spoke and you listened. Your flesh said, I want this, and you gave it. Because that's what sinners do. That's what slaves do. Paul says you crucified your flesh. When you came to Christ, you took your flesh. You said, Christ, I want you and I want your spirit. And he said, okay, let's make a trade. Take your flesh, let's nail it to the cross and you can have my spirit. We'll put it to death. That's what happened. Now here's where verse 25 is interesting because Paul says this, if we live in the Spirit, and literally there he could be saying if we live by the Spirit, he's talking about the fact that if you're in Christ, if the Spirit has made you alive, then what? Let us also walk in the Spirit. It's interesting that he comes back to the same phrase that he used in verse 16 to begin this passage. It comes all the way full circle here. This is what I call an experiential reality. The, the positional reality is Christ. Your flesh has been crucified. But day by day, the reality is there's still a battle. So Paul says, if you are alive in Christ, then guess what? Walk in the Spirit. Live like it. 
You're in Christ, so act like it. Your flesh has been crucified, so today, live that way. Get in the battle and put your flesh down. Remind your flesh that you were nailed to the cross. And that the Spirit of Christ lives in me now and rules and reigns. This is what Paul says. So your flesh was crucified with Christ. So what do we do? Walk today in step with the Spirit. That's what Paul says we ought to do. In other words, your flesh has been nailed to the cross with all of its passions and desires. Here's what I would suggest. Don't take it down. Don't undo the nails. Leave it there. It was nailed there in Christ, so don't take it down. Don't go back to it and say, well, I know it's been crucified, but I really think it'd be nice just for once to take it back. No. Paul says, this is reality. Your flesh was nailed to the cross, but you've got to live it today. So walk in the Spirit. Turn away from your sinful flesh. Engage in the battle. Choose to live by faith. You know, in many ways this morning, we're just scratching the surface of this passage. But I really want to focus on this main thrust, which is the Christian life is not lived by keeping the law. Nor is the Christian life lived by indulging in the flesh. Both of those are set aside here. There is a better way. Live by walking in the Spirit. Now, I've I've explained to you, and we've seen what that means in terms of Paul's letter to the Galatians, but what does that look like in our church? How can we say this is our core value? How could, like I said last week, how could a guest who comes to visit us, how could they see that our church is serious about spirit-controlled living? Well, I think that it has to do, first of all, with what we teach as a church about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and about how to live the Christian life. Again, a lot of churches fall into these two errors. A church that embraces legalism will focus only on keeping the law. Whether that's Old Testament law or some other man-made set of rules. This will result in a form of godliness. You walk into a church like that, you'll see a lot of people who look like they've got it together, but it will lack the power that the Spirit provides. Now on the other hand, a church that embraces license often does so in a reaction to the rigid legalism that they've seen. A church like that will not really talk about sin and repentance, will not talk about the need for personal holiness and separation from sin. A church like that will, look, will not look very different from the world, but instead they'll emphasize the rights of every individual to live as he or she pleases, answering only to God. What about a church that values spirit-controlled living? Well, I tell you what that church is going to teach. They're going to teach its members to put to death the desires of the flesh. It's going to teach its members to engage in the battle between the flesh and the spirit. 
I'm going to teach members to choose to live by faith rather than by effort. Of course, it's not just about what a church teaches because we all know that, that talk is cheap and it's possible for a church to teach all the right things about the Spirit and the right things about living in a Spirit-controlled life, but then undo all of that good teaching by careless or ineffective action. So what do we have to do as a church? Well, if Spirit-controlled living is really a core value, then I think it means that we'll take, we'll take seriously our responsibility as Christians. Not just to pursue holiness, not just to live by the Spirit ourselves, but to help one another grow in godliness, in righteousness and in obedience. You see, a church that's really serious about Spirit-controlled living isn't just going to be a bunch of people that show up at church on Sunday morning and have nothing to do with each other's lives and just live these insulated little lives where nobody really knows what's going on with anybody else. Because if that happens, then what that says is nobody really cares about whether the person sitting next to them in the pew or the chair or whatever. Nobody really cares whether they're living for God. Nobody really, really cares whether they're walking in the Spirit or fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And if that happens, you know where that ends up. Go right back to verses 19, 20, and 21. You can read it. And Paul will tell us where that, what that church will look like. And so if we want to have that kind of church, then let's just insulate ourselves. Let's just not care. Let's not meddle with one another. I know we want to have our space. We want to have everybody keep their arm's length and just stay out of my business and leave me alone. Let me do my thing. But the reality is if that's how we live, then that's what we'll end up with. We'll end up with a, with a church filled with people who indulge their selfish, sinful passions and desires and a church of corruption, of lewdness, of licentiousness, of strife, of envy, of all of those things. That's what our church will become. Because a church that takes it seriously Spirit-controlled living is going to, that the people of that church are going to care, not just about their own walk, but they're going to care that their neighbor and their, 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 their brother and sister who live with them in that church, they're going to care whether they live for the Lord. They're going to care whether they live and walk in the Spirit or whether they do the works of the flesh. You come into a church like that, and what you're going to see is you're going to see Christians praying with one another to overcome sin, to overcome the desires of the flesh. In fact, you'll even see Christians going to one another and asking for prayer to help them overcome sin and weakness. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what a church like that would be like? Where you walk in and someone comes up and says, you know what, I'm so glad you're here. I have been struggling all week with this sin and I need your help. Can you pray with me right now? I need it. Because I don't know if I can make it through and I think I'm going to fall and I need your help. Could you imagine what that would be like? What a radical idea. What a radical picture of the church. Paul would call it a normal Christian church. In a spirit-controlled church, the members will confront one another when someone's sin comes to light. Not with harsh judgment and criticism, but with love, with concern. Because they see their brother or their sister in sin, overtaken by their fleshly desires, and they care enough 
to go to them and confront them. Notice, and I said it on purpose, that the members of the church would do that. Too often we've assigned that role to the pastor and the deacons. It's their job to confront sin. It's their job to make sure everybody's doing what's right. I dare you to try and read through this this passage and find that. You won't find it. You can keep going into Galatians 6, and what you'll find is that this is brothers. Brothers, if a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore him. There's no sense of church leadership there. There's a sense of every brother, every believer taking that responsibility. You see, in a spirit-controlled congregation, you'll find an attitude of humility, especially when it comes to the issue of sin. Why? Because each one of us knows that we are susceptible to the flesh. And when our brother or our sister is overcome by their flesh, we know what it feels like. And so rather than kick them when they're down, rather than shoot them when they're wounded, we bring them, we put our arm around them, we embrace them, and we say, I love you, we've got to deal with this. We can't let it go. It's way too serious. We've got to do something about this. And we do. We love and we care and we correct. But we don't do it with fists. We do it with embraces. We remember that I may be helping to restore a brother or sister today and tomorrow they may be helping to restore me. You see, these are the kind of things that we'll see if we go to a church that values spirit-controlled living. And I would submit to you finally, if these things are not true at Emmanuel Baptist Church, it's because we, as individual Christians and members of Emmanuel Baptist Church, have forgotten what it means to walk in the Spirit. Are you putting to death your flesh? Refusing to indulge it even for a moment? Do you have the courage and the conviction to yield to the Spirit of God and to do battle royal against your flesh with all of its passions and its desires? Are you willing to engage in the fight, not just for yourself, but alongside your brothers and your sisters here in the congregation? Maybe for some it means you need to have some time in prayer, confessing sin, seeking forgiveness and restoration from God. Maybe for others it means you need to make a commitment to the Lord and to His church through baptism, and through church membership. Maybe there's someone in this church from whom you need to seek forgiveness. Maybe someone who's sin you need to confront. Will you do what it takes today to walk in the Spirit? Now all of this assumes that we know Jesus Christ, that we belong to Him. I hate to make that assumption, it's certainly possible that there's someone here today who has never repented of sin and never trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior and their Lord. Do you realize if that's so that you are in bondage to your flesh? If you don't belong to Jesus Christ, then you're a slave to sin. 
Would you like to be set free today? Won't promise you a won't promise you a, a life of ease, smooth sailing with the wind filling your sails as you just coast along in the breeze. No, it's a battle. It's going to be a struggle. But I promise you this, right now you're a slave. The only hope of freedom is Jesus Christ. If you cry out to Him who died for your sins, then you can be free from your sin. And you can have eternal life. I hope you'll trust in Him today.